All right, so today we're going to be talking about sacrifice. What are some of the things that people sacrifice for? Let's, let's hear it. Show of hands. What are some things that you guys talk about at your, your table? Yeah, of course. Say again. Love. Yes. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Okay. Don't give me one. Sorry. What's that? Thank you, Meatloaf. Is that Meatloaf? Well, now I'm getting hungry. Okay, other things people sacrifice. Family. Family, yes. Sacrifice your family or for Other things. What do people sacrifice for? The right things. The right things? Justice. Okay, justice. Sure. What else? God. Okay, for God himself. Let's think more broadly now, not in terms of specific things that we sacrifice for, but just kind of um, in general, if you're sacrificing for something, what does that say about you and your relationship to whatever the thing is that you're sacrificing for? The priority. That's priority. Good. You don't sacrifice for things that are unimportant to you. Okay, good. Anybody, anything to that? I mean, I think we can also connect this. Like Court said, what we love, okay, what we are devoted to, the things that we're devoted to. You know, I uh, often, um, like I did in the sermon, make fun of sports fans because I'm a sports fan. But, like, you know, if you're willing to stand out in 30-degree cold without a shirt on and you have your chest painted, like, you're making sacrifices, right? Because... You have a devotion. Now, Chip joked a second ago about sacrificing family, you know, for your family. But we know this too. All too often, people will make will sacrifice their family on the altar of things like, like work, especially, um, other things too. Uh, so we tend to make sacrifices for and to what we love and what we are devoted to. I love it when the light goes out in the room back there because then they have to find a way to move around enough to, 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 to get it up. Right, right. So when we talk about sacrifice in the Bible, it tends to come in two principal forms. Number, number two on your handout. Two primary categories of sacrifice. The first one is the atoning sacrifice. And the second one is a thanksgiving or to use the fancy word, Eucharistic sacrifice, as the, the from the Greek word uh, Eucharistia, which means Thanksgiving. These are the two main categories of sacrifice, and within the second one, Thanksgiving, it can be broken down into other kind of subcategories. But these are the two primary categories of sacrifice that we find in the Scriptures. So the first one is the atoning sacrifice, which is for the forgiveness of sins. It atones us with God, puts us at one back with God. And Jesus Christ is our atoning sacrifice. Romans 3 says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's your $5 word today. The Greek word is hilasterion, which means the atoning sacrifice by his blood 
to be received by faith. So as to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So when we talk about Jesus is the one and only sacrifice, we're talking about him as the atoning sacrifice. Um, all for sin he atones, right? Is there any other atoning sacrifice out there? No. Okay. But that doesn't mean it stops humans from trying to find other sources of atonement, of reconciliation, of things, ways to try and put things back right. And principally, we, you know, theologically, we talk about that in terms of works righteousness. Or if we, th- we think, if only I can do a little bit more or do a little bit better, then I am going to be righteous. Or as our friend Dave Zoll would put it, I'll be enough. That's kind of like um, uh, just a, a simple contemporary way of talking about when the scriptures talk about being justified, being righteous. In modern parlance, we say, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I fill in the blank, right? And so we pursue things that, from which we can have that sense of enoughness. Now, rarely if ever would people call those atoning sacrifices, right? Nobody thinks of like their social media accounts as atoning sacrifices. And yet it's like, okay, if I can get this just right, then I am going to be just and right. See? Uh, that's where it goes off the rails. There's only one atoning sacrifice, and that's Christ Jesus. The second category is the thanksgiving sacrifice. Um, So the thanksgiving sacrifice is uh, all of those things that are done in response, a response of gratitude for God's mercy. So just a couple quick examples. Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Good news to Abram. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It's a thanksgiving sacrifice. Psalm 50 says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Seems like a good opportunity for a plug. Thanksgiving is just around the corner. We'll be having Thanksgiving Eve service here at church at 7 o'clock, I think you said. Yeah, 7 o'clock. So put that on your calendars. Good. Uh, But Thanksgiving, when we offer Thanksgiving, it's an opportunity of us to respond in gratitude for God's mercy, what he has already done for us. So these are the two primary categories. It goes all the way back. Read in the book of Leviticus. It really spells this out. But those are the two overarching categories. Yeah, Anne. I'm interested in this idea of, of giving thanks being a sacrifice that we make. Yeah. Can you, can you say more about that? Well, let's unpack this a little bit more, and then I will. That's okay. a really good question. So, because um, number three on your handout here, Christians continue to offer spiritual Thanksgiving sacrifices. We tend to think of sacrifice in the Bible as an Old Testament phenomenon, Right? In the Old Testament, there's animals, there's blood, there's altars, there's all that kind of stuff. And then Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. You think, well, what need is there for any more sacrifices? Which is true if you're talking about which kind of sacrifice? The atoning. There's no need for any more atoning sacrifices. But the second category of thanksgiving is ongoing. It's unceasing. Um, so to, to Anne's question, let me give you a couple of scriptures and we'll kind of unpack this a little bit. So Hebrews 13 says this, Through Christ then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good 
and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then from 1 Peter chapter 2, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Can't that get a little bit out of hand, though, when we say, oh, look what I did today. I didn't have dinner. I sacrificed my <laughs> dinner or whatever. Absolutely. So you know, Leslie asks, can, can that get out of hand? Can, can it be abused? For sure. And especially when we put the focus so much on here's what I'm, what I'm doing. But I would say in that case, the problem isn't the sacrifice. The problem is that we've totally missed the point, right? That this is meant to be an offering unto God in thanksgiving for what he has already done for us. Now to Anne's question, how, in what sense is this thanksgiving a sacrifice? Maybe already in those scriptures you start to get a sense of it. But what are your impressions about how, how could we say that thanksgiving to God is a sacrifice? It wouldn't seem to be hard to say, thank you, Lord. But how could that be a sacrifice? We're taking the focus off of ourselves. Okay, we're taking the focus off of ourselves, which is always a sacrifice. Because we want to be focused on ourselves all the time. Great point. Yeah, Tom. I always had trouble with Cain and Abel, those first sacrifices. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it seemed to be the right thing was all good things come from God, so you give your best as a thanks back. Right. Right, so Tom asks about Cain and Abel, and just real quick, you remember the story of the two brothers, and uh, they both bring sacrifices to the Lord, and it says God was pleased with um, Abel's sacrifice, but with Cain's sacrifice, he was not pleased. It doesn't say why in the scriptures. Now, you go fast forward to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Abel offered the sacrifice. He offered it in faith as a thanksgiving sacrifice. Whereas Cain had this mentality of, I'm going to offer my sacrifice not in thanksgiving, but in a sense of, of atoning. Okay? If I can somehow placate or appease God by means of the sacrifice. God says, no, this is not what I'm looking for. Yeah, Carla. It always seemed to me that, that Cain was doing it out of obligation or responding to a command. Right. Whereas Abel was doing it as a heartfelt. Yes, right. Children. Very much so. Yep, Abel, Abel has that spirit of faith, which, I mean, faith is not a New Testament phenomenon. It's not that only in the New Testament are we saved by grace through faith. This was true from the very beginning of the scriptures. This is always the way that God has related to his people because he's a God of promises. And so we trust those promises. It's what we call faith. When we think about this Thanksgiving, I mean, the Thanksgiving sacrifices take different forms. So it's it's not simply in the saying thank you, well, that's part of it. And I think to Leslie's point, that's a sacrifice in itself because to say thank you to somebody acknowledges that you didn't what? Do it yourself. You didn't do it yourself. Sometimes that can be the hardest thing of all to acknowledge, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do it. I needed others to help me. I'm you know, on the shoulders of others, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it also plays out because these Thanksgiving sacrifices come in different forms. One of them we've talked about already in a recent Bible study, which is singing. Singing is one of the things that's talked about in the scriptures as a spiritual sacrifice. And I'm not talking about listening to other people sing either, okay? 
or your own or your own thing. But then the it's singing a sacrifice for others. It, it's, a, it's a spiritual sacrifice that we offer unto the Lord, the, the fruit of lips. But then there's two other primary ones that we're going to talk about today. One is prayer, and the other is offering, giving up of our material goods um, to, to the Lord. These are different spiritual sacrifices of thanksgiving, things that we do in response to what God has already done. Um, I, I, I think it's important to make this distinction, number four on your handout, between a sacrifice and a sacrament. Uh, so I want to I want to clarify that here real quick, and it's something that I've I've talked about before, but it's it's worth uh, reiterating. For one thing, the words both sound so similar. Sacrament and sacrifice. They both have as part of their root the Latin word. Sacer, to be holy, to make holy. So uh, a holy a holy offering and a holy gift, or a holy, well, it was a, a, a solemn pledge is what a sacrament originally was. But you've got a um, table on here, on your handout, kind of laying out, this is not exhaustive, but kind of giving you a picture of how a sacrifice and a sacrament are distinguished from one another. So a sacrament is God's gift. We think of uh, Holy Communion, Holy Baptism, these are God's gifts. It's God coming down to us from heaven to earth. It's received in faith. What are we receiving? We're receiving the fruits of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Now it's given to us. And as I say, Holy Baptism, Holy Communion, the, uh, the sacraments of God. But then sacrifice, on the other hand, as we're talking about it here, is our response. These sacrifices of thanksgiving. It's our response and it's not received in faith, it's prompted by faith. Because we believe, this is what we do. Okay? Um, so prayer, offering, singing, etc. These are things that we do because we believe, ret returning, responding back to God. So as we've been going uh, throughout this study, talk about how the sacrament is God coming down to us. The arrow is, is down. The sacrifice, these thanksgiving sacrifices, is the arrow going up our response to what he has already done. Okay. Questions or, or clarifications about that distinction? Yeah, Chet. And that's one of the things with Catholics is the Eucharist is there kind of a re-sacrifice. Yes, right. And so that's a difference in our interpretation. Of yeah, okay. yeah. so this is, um, this is a really key point that the difference between Lutherans and Catholics um, historically when it com comes to the Eucharist, comes to the Lord's Supper, is in understanding what's going on here. It's not in our belief in the real presence. Both Lutherans and Catholics believe in the real presence, that Jesus is truly present in, with, and under the bread and wine. The distinction is, as Lutherans, we recognize that this is God's once-for-all once for all sacrifice that Christ made for us. And so what we are receiving in the Lord's Supper is simply the ongoing interest of God's once-for-all gift. You can put it that way. Um, what Roman Catholics believe about um, the sacrament is that it is a re-sacrifice. So that it's an unbloody sacrifice. So that um, each, and every, each and every week or even every day as the, the mass is offered up, it's like they, it inverts the arrows. And it turns it from being a thing God coming down, now it turns it into a thing of 
me climbing up to God and uh, in a way that, um, I mean, Luther was just abhorred by because he was saying, hey, now what should be God's greatest gift turns into our supposedly greatest uh, work. Yes? Are you saying that when Mass is spoken in the Catholic Church, it's our re-sacrifice of the Lord? Essentially, yes. So they, they so we, we have to do that again and again so that it keeps being fresh for us. Is yeah, it keeps it keeps it keeps keeps us covered, right? That, and this is what they'll call it. I mean, they'll call it the Eucharist and so forth, but the their their name for it will be the sacrifice of the mass. So, in particular, not even the whole liturgy, but in particular the Eucharistic liturgy, it's re-sacrificing Christ in a sense, offering up to God again. And then God accepts that sacrifice. And this is where it all gets out of whack. And this was uh, theologically um, kind of the, um, say, the, the flashpoint for the teachings of the Reformation. Because you see how it just fundamentally inverts the direction of grace. Rather than it being God down to us, to us down. Do they believe then that Jesus is suffering again as they do this? Or is yes. it just more us focused? Yeah, I was taught that our ongoing sins contribute continuously to that suffering. So like eternal crucifixion. Yeah, it's a real guilt trip. Continue, it is a real guilt trip. That's right. Now, th this it's one thing to say this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It doesn't necessarily mean every Catholic believes that. And in fact, recent research has shown that a lot of Catholics are basically Baptists when it comes to their view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so, in the sense that they just believe it as kind of a symbolic sort of thing. But this, I mean, this is the formal teaching of the, of the church. Um, and we say, Oof, that just totally turns upside down and just loads guilt upon guilt. Because, you know, how, how God is just like still kind of like, all right, that was good, but can you do better, right? Do you have more that you can offer? And say, everything has been done already. I mean, I say this a lot, but Jesus on the cross does not say, it's mostly done. Or, it's a good start. He says, it is finished, right? So, that's where, that's where we stake our faith, our life. It is done. It's completed. God is happy with you of what Jesus has done for you. Okay. First, I had to finish the giant cathedral. Yes, right. So, I mean, this is the, the, the fascinating historical point that um, St. Peter's needed to be, well, re, it, was, it was a capital campaign, basically, in the Middle Ages, um, and that was where the sale of indulgences really ramped up. And so... I've never been there, but I got to believe there's a lot of ambivalence if you go and visit Rome and go to St. Peter's where it's, it's built on the money of indulgences and on false teaching to God's people being, being led astray. It's kind of, I mean, it's sad. But I think it's, it can also be a case of how God works all things to the good, that he, you know, he still uses it to glorify him and to point others to him. So we, we praise him for that. But yeah, there's some, some sneaky stuff up in there. Okay, I want to talk about these two... Um, Spiritual sacrifices, in particular, of prayer and the offering. This is a, a Bible study where we're going through our, our worship. And so I want to talk about prayer, not just prayer in general, but specifically um, as, it, as we do it in the worship service and why it's even part of the service. I mean, some people might say, you know, why do you, why do you pray as part of the worship service? I mean, can't you all do that individually? Shouldn't you all be doing that individually? Why can or should we do it as part of the service? 
How would you respond to that? Somebody thinks, you know what? I, prayer is something Jesus says, you know, go home, do it in your, in your closet in secret. This is clearly not in secret. It's in public, doing it together. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, John. Luke 11, uh, Jesus says do it. Okay, yes. That's my favorite response. Jesus says do it, so I'm doing it. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, that's, that's where we really go to. So good. Anyone else add anything more to that? I mean, you don't need a whole lot more. But Matthew's not wrong, but it's different. It's, speak, yeah. it's speaking to, to it's different questions. Thing, different. Yeah, good. Uh, other thoughts? Well, I think it's more powerful, perhaps, yeah. than all of us pray together as opposed to on our own. Right. We'll be doing anyway, but we're yeah. all unified. Right. We're doing the same thing. Yeah. Really I mean, it's something, I think that there's something really beautiful about us gathering together, offering our prayers up to God. And uh, we talked earlier about the prayer that we call the collect, the collect of the day. Um, and it's, the meaning of that is very simple. The idea is that it's collecting all of the, the thoughts and prayers of God's people. So that's why um, I say at that point, the Lord be with you, and you say, and also with you, say, let us pray. And then um, the rubrics, or kind of the stage directions, if you will, for the liturgy, say at that point, the pastor takes a moment of silence. Okay? This is hard in 21st century America. People get antsy after like five seconds, like, is he okay? Should we go check on him? Um, but the idea is like, okay, now we're, we're gathering up the thoughts and the prayers of God's people, offering them up to the Lord. So, yeah, there is real power there. Oh, I think, yeah, that power comes in the unity. We're all doing the same thing. We're all focused on the same person mm-hmm. or this situation. And there's a lot of power in that corporateness yes. that we have. Yep, Absolutely. And he also said, where two or three are gathered together in Bingo. my name. Yep, that's right. So this is, this is just fundamental to who we are and what we do as the body of Christ, as the church. We gather together, two or three or more are gathered um, with one voice. We glorify God by praying to him. Let us pray. So number five on your handout there, on the second page, prayer is a priestly duty of the royal priesthood. Priestly duty of the royal priesthood. Now remember, think back to the Old Testament, and what was the main job of the priest to do? What was your What was your main job if you were a priest? Hey, girl. Offer sacrifices. Yep. Your Your job was like one part butcher, um, one part janitor, but that's what it meant to be a priest. You're the guy who offers up sacrifices. Now we're told that we, all the church, are the royal priesthood. And so our fundamental job is to offer spiritual sacrifices. Not sacrifice Fido on the back altar, okay? But to offer up prayers. So when we gather together and and pray together as the body of Christ, this is a, a fundamental, elemental expression of who we are as the royal priesthood. We're interceding on behalf of one another, on behalf of our neighbors, on behalf of our world. Um, I included in here, I won't read it straight through, but you guys know the story, perhaps, of Abraham with, um, well, I, I, I take a minute to read this. From, this is from Genesis 18. And God has told Abram, then Abraham, uh, that he's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. If you're not familiar with this part of the story, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah before. Bad news. <clears throat> then Abraham, but... Keeping that in mind, this story is even more poignant and powerful. 
okay? Because listen to this. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to my Lord, to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I won't destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I won't do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak. Suppose, you know, 30 are found there. He answered, I won't do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I won't destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Fascinating passage. What does it sound like Abraham is doing here? Trying to remember how many relatives. <laughs> <laughs> right, bargaining. Yeah, man. I've always wondered. I don't. There's nothing factual to this, but I've always wondered if he was using the marked stones mm. in this process, uh-huh. whether this was actual dialogue, right, or whether this was. Yeah, like the Urim and the, the Thummim. Like, yeah, if he yeah. was basically kind of gambling before the Lord and saying, "All right, do I hear ten? Okay, five. You know." Um, it's, it's such a remarkable passage, but here's what it tells us. Uh, God wants to hear from us and he has invited us to come before him, as it says in the small catechism, with all boldness and confidence as dear children ask their dear fathers. I love the boldness and the confidence that Abraham has here. And, you know, Luther says that in the catechism. And I think, you know, we learned this from kids. You know, kids have no problem coming up and saying, hey, give me some candy, you know. (laughs) All right, now let's barter a little bit. How about after dinner? After dinner, will you give me two pieces? You know, oh, let not my father be angry, but perhaps you'll give me three pieces of candy (laughs) after supper, you know. Um, But here's God's heart for you and me. He wants to hear from us. He wants to, to be wrestling with us in prayer. We have that example of Jacob wrestling with the angel, who uh, tells us may in fact be kind of a pre-incarnate Jesus himself. You have the Canaanite woman who comes before the Lord and says, you know, Lord, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, ah, it's not right to give the the children's food to the dogs. What what is that about? He's wrestling with her spiritually. And of course, ultimately she, she prevails. God wants to wrestle with us in prayer. It's part of our priestly duty. And again, just uh, an obvious point, but maybe one that we overlook. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray my Father in heaven. Our Father. It's a corporate thing. It's all of us together as the family of God offering up prayers to our Heavenly Father. So yes, there's real power in that. And it shouldn't be neglected. Okay, number six then, and this is kind of implicit with, what, with Abraham's prayers already. Our prayers have a twofold thrust. 
for the church and for the world. So uh, each week, stand up, say the prayers. We say, let us pray for the whole people of God in Christ Jesus and for all people according to their needs. Whole people of God and for all people according to their needs. So when it says all people, who does that include? All people. Yes, not a trick question. It includes, or is that a trick question? I don't know. All people. This is what Paul tells us, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, etc. This is uh, fundamental to our prayers. It's not just praying for people we like. It's not just praying for ourselves. It's praying for all people. And in particular, Paul says to pray for those in authority. I've probably told this story before, but the first Sunday after the 2016 election, uh, we offered prayers as we do almost every week. We prayed for, uh, for Donald, our president. And from the first pew behind me, I hear somebody say, not my president. <laughs> and I was just thinking in my head, that totally misses the point. It doesn't matter whether or not you voted for the person who's in office. We are duty bound. It's one of the things I appreciate that in, in Michigan, um, we have a, you know, a Democratic governor, right? And a Republican president. We pray for both of them. This is not a partisan kind of thing. This is just... Praying for those who are in authority over us, recognizing that the church and the kingdom of God transcends the kind of, uh, of boundaries and divisions that we have in our human culture. Uh, so we pray for all people. Of course, Jesus tells us we pray for our enemies, right? Maybe in particular you pray for your enemies. What are you praying for, though? Well, that's a, that's a fair question. Well, yeah. What would you say? Well, I mean, you pray for lots of things for your enemies sure. that wouldn't be... Maybe what God was intending for that statement. That's, you know? a, that's, that's fair. Yeah, let's say. A lot of times when we pray for our enemies or people we don't like, where you will pray that God would change their heart. Sure. What I want them to do. Right, right. But in reality, what he does is change our hearts to love that person more. Yeah, be more patient with them. I mean, I think that he, I think he does both, right. that he can do both. Um, I mean, Jesus does say, bless those who persecute you, you know, bless and, and do not curse them. So hopefully in those prayers, they are positive prayers. By the same token, though, you read the Psalms, and the Psalms are the school of prayer, and there's what are called the imprecatory Psalms. You know, blessed be the one who dashes your little one upon the rocks. <laughs> yeah. Psalm 137, talking about when the people were in Babylon. There are some really hard prayers. Incidentally, those don't show up in the worship life of the church very often. Um, but those are there. God is showing us it's okay. We don't have to be nice to him in prayer, I guess would be my response, Chip. Like, if you're praying for an enemy and you're praying, God, I'm praying for this person, I pray that you would just shut them up, right? I think that's an okay prayer to pray. And the Lord's going to take that and say, okay, that's interesting. You know, it's good. The main thing is that keeping that line of communication, communion open with him. And I do think that the Lord continues to mold and fashion our hearts. Look, if there's anybody that you are regularly lifting up before the Lord in prayer, you're not going to be able to stay mad at them for very long or regard them as an enemy for, as an enemy for, for too long. Yeah. Maybe I don't have the words quite right, but didn't... 
Christ say on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. That, bingo. I yep. mean, he, he didn't close them off. He didn't say damn them. Right. Uh, or he didn't say change them. He just said forgive them. Right. Now, he would have liked to have changed them. And also, whenever he was dealing with the, the church hierarchy, yeah. he, he didn't damn any of them. I mean, he didn't say you're a waste of time on you know, Sure. Yeah, I mean, make no mistake, Jesus was not afraid of saying the hard words. Think, you know, woe to you, Pharisees, or like we heard today, of kind of uh, giving it to the, the Sadducees. By the same token, he loves them. And it seems like most of the meals that Jesus is having, well, he's got his meals with kind of the tax collectors and the riffraff that gets people mad. But who else is he eating with? The Pharisees? His, his opponents, he continues to seek them out. The parable of the prodigal son, case in point, right? We, we focus on that younger son who gets welcomed back, you know, slay the, the fattened calf, welcome him in. It's a beautiful story. But the upshot of it, as Jesus tells it, is the second son, the one who's, you know, throwing the pity party for himself out in the field. Man, I can't believe he's welcoming back that younger, good-for-nothing son. And Jesus tells us in the story, the father kept going out and entreating him, pleading with him, begging him, come back in. So God even loves religious people, uh, which is really good news for us, right? He's, he, he, he puts up with all manner of goofiness from us. Can I tell you guys a quick story along those lines? I meant to tell in the sermon today, and I, I uh, uh, forgot it. But there's this, a story that's told about... Um, this great 20th century evangelist, Fulton Sheen, and uh, he's a Catholic guy. He was kind of a, a forerunner. He's like Walter A. Meyer. He's a um, you know a media guy. And, um, he was a TV superstar. Yeah, he was a, he was a TV superstar, and famous for you know God bringing people to faith through his ministry. And the story goes, Fulton Sheen, he's on his deathbed, and this this young proud priest comes to him, and um, is, is you know looking for advice from the great Fulton Sheen because he says. I want to be, you know, I want to be an evangelistic priest like you. He says, in fact, I've already converted 14 people, you know, to the Lord. So, you know, do you have any further advice for me how I can be like you? And Fulton Sheen kind of gets up on his elbows and painfully sits up so he can look the, the young priest right in his eyes. And he says, here's what you need to know. Stop counting. Uh, because you, it's so easy to turn that into, oh, here's, here's what I'm doing, and it totally misses the point and just reinforces that kind of sense of, of Pharisaism. But anyway, deleted scene for you guys there. <clears throat> All right, we've got uh, about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about the offering, too, because this is the other significant spiritual sacrifice that's offered in the context of the worship service. And so page four, number seven on your, on your handout. In the offering, we offer not merely our money, but ourselves. So we sing this offertory, which is from Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call on the name of the Lord. It's right in there. I'll take the cup of salvation, will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. To pay one's vows, to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving is not, underline, not about paying God off, right? This is not about somehow bribing the Lord or saying, okay, God, you know, 
I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, okay? I'll take care of you, I'll put my 10% in the plate, just make sure everything goes all right for me. That's not it at all. This is about us responding to God's grace, offering out of our own back to him. True, through those tithes and offerings, God continues to sustain and provide for his church. Um, And that matters, right? Like, that matters. Um, But that's not the primary fundamental purpose of it. You think of the the great story, Mark 12. um, You guys know this one, the the poor widow. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny, which make a penny. She actually brought 10,000 coupons, which were each worth one, ten, no. <clears throat> Does that crack you up? It says that on the box of coupons, <laughs> value, one ten thousandth of a penny. Anyway, <clears throat> and he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You guys know this, that our our offerings are not about the amount, but it's about that sacrifice of giving back to the Lord out of what he has given to us. We're stewards of his abundance. We're giving it back to him. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifices. So when we give our offerings, you know, we don't all, you know, go up to the altar and kind of lay on the altar and just kind of stack up. But when we give our offerings, that's like our token of us offering ourselves. See, I've heard stories. Maybe some of you have, have witnessed this. We t- just put money in the plate, right? But I've heard stories in, you know, uh, agricultural communities and so forth of people bringing like fruits, vegetables from the heart. Have any of you ever seen this? Or is this just like an urban legend that gets passed around among pastors? Carly, you've nodding your you know. Well, I've seen it in, in foreign countries. In yeah, what did that South, look like? South Africa, the women brought the offerings. Yeah. And they sang and paraded to the front of the altar with their chickens, their eggs, their bananas, their pineapples, whatever. They sang and paraded. They sang. Court, what do you think? Can we start... <laughs> <laughs> but they did. I mean, it was the women who brought the offering. Sure, and and it was it was from their abundance, from their from their harvest. What they had. What they had. Yeah, I think it's so beautiful. And but it's the it's the same idea. Like it's not like it has to just be money. It's I mean, in the Old Testament, it's the first first fruits of your harvest, right? Um, for most of us in modern modern Western world, our harvest tends to be you know cash. cash. Um, but the idea is that you're giving of yourself back to the Lord. Um, uh, Paul Lang, uh, one theologian, writes this. He says, The Eucharistic token of material things, that is the offering, stands for ourselves. By them and in them, we are carried and placed on the altar of God. They're not merely a donation, but a token of ourselves. It's not just, oh, I'll throw a little bit in the plate. I want, you know, want to help the preacher out. This is a token of ourselves. That's why I think it's so significant that the offering plates are taken and put on the altar because it's just this thing, offering ourselves as living sacrifices back to God. All right, one last thought, number eight. The offering conveys the economics of the kingdom. Economics of the kingdom. 
By that I mean how we understand our possessions, our resources, all of our goods from God's kingdom perspective. And I, I sum it up in just one short phrase, two words. God provides. God provides. So first, put the accent on that second word, provides. So God provides. Therefore, we can give freely and generously because we know that he, give, he gives us what we need. And so we can give it away. We don't have to hoard it. There's countless stories of this in, in the scriptures, right? You go back to the Old Testament um, with the Israelites and the manna or the New Testament, the parable Jesus tells about the rich fool who just builds bigger barns rather than giving away what he has. So since God provides, that gives us the freedom and the confidence to share with others. Otherwise, I mean, we say 10%, and you could say, well, 10%, gosh, that's so much. But, I mean, God could ask for everything, right? Um, even, if, I mean, when we start kind of bartering down that way, well, 10%, how about 5%, Lord? How about 1%? Like, um, but when we start with, this is the idea of like the first fruits right off the top. Um, when you start with that, I don't know. I mean, for, for my family, as long as Anne and I have been married and together, we've tithed and said, you know, 10% right off the top. People, you know, don't like to talk about this or are uncomfortable about it. Or they say, that's an Old Testament thing. I say, yeah, you don't have to give 10%. You can give lots more. <laughs> um, but I think it's a helpful rule of thumb. And you say, I don't know how I could do that. I don't know how I could afford that. And let me be clear. Like, I, I get it. There's sometimes when you really can't. And maybe all you can bring is the goat or you know, the, the, the produce. But I will say this. I think too many people sell themselves and sell the Lord short on this because they haven't even tried. By, but in my experience, um, and in many, many others I've talked to, you do this, God provides. He's made that promise. Okay. But then the, the second part is God provides. Okay? Putting the emphasis on the first one. God provides. He's the one who's giving. Therefore, we must be good stewards of the gifts entrusted to us. It's not ours. It's his. See, it, he, he gives it to us to share, to re- return to him in thanksgiving, to bless others with as well, um, to be good stewards of it. This is the, it's the real basic mindset of stewardship is that we, are, we do not possess anything. It's all rental. Lord lets us uh, use it for a time for the sake of others. All right, that's a, a lot on the offering in just a few minutes. But questions or, or reflections about that? Yeah, Chip. So we always confuse these uh, two, right? Because we will make our, our Thanksgiving offering, you know, make it about atonement or being right with us because we're, our human nature, we're, sure. we're, we're sinful. We're always going to kind of screw that up. Right. Our, I mean, Luther says even our good works. Right. 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 I mean, so it's our human nature that we're going to think, bigger about ourselves, or right. this or that, and, and so what advice do you have to all of us who, you know, won't get this right? Sure. Um, well, first thing that comes to mind is stop counting. <laughs> but I think there is something but to that. But when you do count, right. I mean, <laughs> um, because Sheen probably said that because he had done that. Sure. Oh, yeah, It exactly. wasn't like he had never done it. Exactly. He had, he had done that. Right. And I think, I think um, part of it is recognizing for ourselves, not, not do, working too hard to kind of navel gaze and say, you know, is my motivation really pure in this? So you can really get yourself tied in knots about things. Like, I don't know if my motivation is, is perfectly pure. Like, I want to, to give, but then I start to think, oh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm doing that just because I think I want to be a good person or I want others to, to see. And my advice to you is don't worry about the motivation. 
Are your motives mixed? Almost certainly, right? They always are. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you offer it up to the Lord. And then that's why we confess every week. Lord, I know that my motives have been mixed, that even my good works have been stained with sin. But I offer this to you. Take, take what's good and what's not, burn away and let that go away. Because that's, like you say, this is, this is going to be our, our reality all throughout life, this side of uh, the heavenly kingdom. Good. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, I think if a person has never tithed or never given regularly, they start with 1%. Yeah. You know, and then as the Lord blesses, they can move it to 2 or 3 or whatever. But to jump in at 10% would be really, really far. Well, that, fair enough. I think it, it can be jarring. Now, when I go down to the lake, I like to just jump in. Uh, but for, you know, I think that there's, there is wisdom to starting out um, smaller and kind of stair-stepping it up. The key is sort of having a, a mechanism, a reminder, because you, you get into a habit, you kind of get into a rut, you just stick with something for a long time. So I think it's having something that reminds you, okay, now's a good season for me to check that again. Maybe it's, you know, tax season, like doing the taxes and think, okay, you know, is it time for me to change this? And it might be in a different direction, right? Um, maybe I, I need to, to scale back for whatever reason. But um, no, that's, that's a fair point. Thank you. All right, thanks so much, guys. This is very good. And uh, next week, I'm, um, either next week or the week following, come to Bible study. But we're going to be sharing um, the survey that we had you all do recently. Um, we're going to be sharing some of the results from that and talking about that. So uh, either next Sunday or the, or the following, I think we'll have that conversation during Bible study. So I hope that you'll uh, be there and, and join us for that. Thanks very much.